0: The presence of everyone this evening. I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You ever told anybody, maybe you're involved in a project, maybe at home, and uh, you're scuffling with it a little bit. It's not going quite as smoothly as you hoped it would. And your wife comes up to you, or your husband comes up to you and says, Well, you need any help? And you say, Look, I got this. Or, Maybe a couple of people are involved in a discussion, pretty uh, energetic kind of uh, conflict uh, of sorts. And a third party steps in and offers to help and somebody says, look, look, I got this. Or uh, we might be uh, at work and uh, uh, you you give an employee uh, a a project and you check on that project and after a while, you see he's struggling with it a little bit. And you say, well, you, you need some help. Can I get you to help? Look, don't worry. I got this. And, uh, you know, that expression really suggests that the one who says it has confidence in himself. He's certain that he's able to accomplish the task. If it's a project at home, he's confident he's able to get the project done and do it right and be successful in, in what he's trying to do. But sometimes people say, look, I got this, when they don't got this at all, you know. And so sometimes they have confidence that they can do it when when really they they shouldn't. They're not able to uh, uh, accomplish the task, or they fall short in accomplishing the task. Well, the passage we want to look at tonight speaks to that a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 says... Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And so here's a person who's confident that he's able to stand. He's he's got confidence that his spiritual condition is is on solid ground and firm footing. When really he shouldn't have that confidence at all. He he thinks he's standing, but he's not standing at all. He's really in trouble. He thinks I got this when when he don't got it, when he doesn't have it at all. Well, look at that passage a little bit tonight. It serves as a warning. Paul is warning the Corinthians about their situation, and of course it serves as a warning to us as well. So let's think about a little bit about the situation the church at Corinth was in and why Paul would bring this up. And then we'll make some applications to ourselves uh, tonight uh, toward the end of the, the lesson. Well, it appears from a study of 1 Corinthians that they thought they were quite, uh, they thought quite highly of themselves. They thought quite highly of their own spiritual abilities and their spiritual well-being or their spiritual health. They were quite impressed with wisdom from a worldly perspective, from a worldly point of view. You might remember the early parts of the 1 Corinthians of the 1 Corinthians letter, Paul has quite a bit to say about wisdom, the wisdom of this world and and worldly wisdom. And so they, they thought very highly of that, and they thought very highly of themselves by those standards, by the standard of worldly wisdom. They had received a number of spiritual gifts. And so in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul addresses that. He addresses the spiritual gifts that they possessed and the appropriate use of those spiritual gifts, and the right attitude that they ought to have one another as a result of those spiritual gifts. But they had received several spiritual gifts, miraculous gifts, and so that might have contributed to their their arrogance, to their high-mindedness, to their thinking of, of themselves above what they ought. And so those things might have added to their pride. They thought that they had achieved a higher degree of spirituality than most. And so they lived on a little bit higher plane than, than most, and, and they had achieved a, a higher level of spirituality than others. And of course that attitude led to problems. Look at, look at some of those. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, they're guilty of boasting. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So you can see that that arrogant attitude. You you think you're sort of a cut above others. You're superior. Paul says, you know, you, you don't have anything that you didn't receive from him and other teachers or that they didn't receive from God. So why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, they're arrogant and boasting about having this man who has his father's wife in their midst. And so he said, you should have been ashamed, but verse 2, you become arrogant and haven't mourned instead. That's simply the product of thinking more highly of themselves than they should have thought. We have a little bit more insight, a little bit more spiritual perception than most. And so they're not only defensive of this situation, they're Arrogant about it. In chapters 8 through 10, they're disregarding their brethren. And so here are some who have uh, the confidence to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and they sort of look down their nose at those who hesitate to do that. And so they have contempt for their brethren and disregard the consciences of their brethren. And then in verses 12 through 14, They consider their brethren with lesser spiritual gifts, at least in their estimation, as less valuable to the body. And so Paul addresses that. He says in verse 15, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of a body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And he goes on to discuss that. It's not right to consider inferior those who have the less spectacular gifts, something like that. And so during the course of the letter, Paul rebukes them in chapter 1 and verse 26. He reminds them. Now, now look, brethren, you know, so I, I know you, you know me, I, I know who you are. Not many wise, according to the flesh, have been called. Not many mighty, not many noble. I, I, I know who you are. I know your background. I, and, and not many of you are wise according to the world. Not, not many noble. So you may think highly of yourselves, but, but really you don't have any reason to think that way. In fact, he goes on to say God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. So he, he rebukes them for this high-mindedness. In chapter 3 and in verse 18. He says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he might become wise. And so apparently there are some in Corinth who thought they were wise by worldly standards, the standards of this age. But you may think that, but you need to humble yourself and become Foolish if you want to be wise. In chapter 4 and verse 7, again, why do you boast as if you did not receive the things that you received? And then he, he speaks with some sarcasm You're already filled. You've already become rich. You become kings without us. I indeed wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. Because we become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent in Christ. You're wise. We're weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're without honor. And so, again, thanks speaking with some irony or some, some sarcasm there to rebuke them for their, their arrogance and their pride. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, I, I could not speak to you as spiritual men best to men of the flesh as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food for you're not able to receive it. Even now you're not able to receive it. He goes on to say you're fleshly and you have this, you know, these attitudes toward each other that are inappropriate. And so he's criticizing them. He's trying, he's bringing them down. They're, they're confident, they're arrogant, they're proud, they think a great deal of themselves. And Paul says, look, you're just, you you're, you're, I have to feed you with milk. You're still infants. And so he's, he's rebuking them. And then in chapter 14 and verse 37, you remember Paul says that if there is anyone spiritual among them, I think the idea there, again, in light of what he's had to say, if anyone thinks himself to be spiritual or on a higher spiritual plane than others, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things that I, that I write to you are the commandment of the Lord. Now you think you're a prophet, you think you're spiritual, but I'm telling you what I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And so no wonder in chapter 10 and verse 12 he issues this warning. You know, that let, let each one who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. And so there must have been those among them, as we've seen from what we've discussed up to this point, that they, were, they thought they were standing. They thought they were firm footing. They thought they were spiritually healthy and thriving, when in fact they, they weren't. Now sometimes Christians can think very highly of themselves for uh, reasons that are not valid. And maybe their wealth Makes them think more highly of themselves than they should. You know, we, and that can happen sometimes. Our culture places a lot of emphasis on wealth and status and those kind of things, where you live, and what kind of car you drive. And, and sometimes, you know, we can get puffed up about ourselves in that way and bring that into the church. Or it may be uh, the, the, whatever we've achieved, or our level of education, or our worldly importance. You know, my job, you know, I hold this position. And we bring that kind of high-mindedness into the church. It, sh- it shouldn't be. We think more highly of ourselves than we should. Or it might be because we've been a member of the church for so long. Well, I've been a member of church, or I've been a member of this church for X number of years. And so, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm standing. <laughs> and my, my footing is secure. I'm in no danger I've been a member of the church for 50 years. Well, that doesn't mean that you've developed in your spiritual maturity that, you know, that much. You might still be an infant. That's what Paul tells the Corinthians. Think you're spiritual, but I've got to deal with you as as infants. And so the warning applies to us as well. Notice also that the warning is addressed to the one who thinks he's standing not, not to the one who's standing necessarily, but to the one who thinks he's standing. He thinks he's spiritually stable, on firm footing, and in no danger. But in reality, he's not as secure as he thinks he is. He's in great danger. The Bible warns us against self-deception. In the book of James, think about a couple of statements in the book of James, James chapter 1, verse 22 But prove yourselves, doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. We can deceive ourselves. and We can think we're one thing, but we're actually something else. Convince ourselves that this is my condition when really it's not our condition. Verse 26 of James chapter 1. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And so, you see, he deceives his own heart. You know, it's one thing to be deceived. All of us can be deceived. And so we might uh, want to go buy a, a used car, and a car salesman's pretty slick, and he, he tells us this is one thing, if it's a reliable car, but really it, it, it's not. All of us can be deceived, and all of us at one time or another have been deceived. That, that, that's understandable. The most pitiful kind of deception is self-deception, though, isn't it? when we deceive ourselves, when we convince ourselves we are one thing, but we're really not that at all. And that's the idea here. That the one who thinks he's stand, he's convinced himself that he's standing. but He's really not standing at all, he's tottering. He's in danger of, of falling. And so that's a, that's a sad situation. What can we do about that? Well, we can develop some humility about our condition. Romans chapter 12 says that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Romans 12 in verse 3. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and uh, verses 6 and 7, he says to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt you. In due time, in proper time. And so we can clothe ourselves with humility. We can be, be on guard that we not begin to think of ourselves more highly than we should. And then in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, as chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So what what can we do about this danger? First of all, develop a little humility about ourselves. We can examine ourselves regularly. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. And so on a regular basis, we test ourselves and examine ourselves in light of the Word. The word's like a mirror, isn't it? We look into the word, hopefully it will reveal to us our shortcomings and our faults and flaws and all of those kinds of things. So a little humility, and then self-examination, some serious self-examination, being honest with ourselves about what we see when we examine ourselves. Pray that God show us our faults. Now, that's something that maybe we don't do often enough, is in prayer ask God, show me, show me my faults. Show me where I'm falling short. I think of the 139th Psalm in verse 23, David says, search me, O God, search me. Know my heart, try me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. And so in our prayers, search my heart try me, put me to the test, and show me there's anything there that I need to address, that I need to improve. And I suppose, and I'm pretty confident, that if we ask that sincerely, God will show those things to us in one way or another, and we can improve on them. And then be aware that we're in danger continually. We're in constant danger of temptation. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, well, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Be careful how you walk. You're you're in danger. Be careful where you step. Make sure that you're on solid ground as, as you walk along life's way. And so be aware of the danger. Be humble about our spiritual growth and development. Examine ourselves regularly, asking God to reveal to us those places where we need to become stronger and improve. And so Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Now, you might have noticed that this is sort of in the middle of a discussion here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And, and previous to that, Paul uses four Old Testament examples. To make his point. And so let's take to take a look at those four. He begins by saying, I do want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, and so he's talking about Israel, the nation of Israel in the past, they're our fathers, those who of us who are in the church in the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, like we talked about this morning as we're studying Revelation. Our fathers, going back to the nation of Israel, were all under the cloud passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so before he brings up these four Old Testament episodes, Paul establishes the, we might say, the privileged position of Israel. They, like the Corinthians, had been baptized. And so it refers to the passing through the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14 verse 22 says, uh, "says Israel went, through the, uh, Israel, Israel went through the midst of the sea. Now, now there is water on each side. There is a cloud that's leading the way. And so they passed through the midst of the sea. And so in a sense they were baptized. Baptized into Moses and so forth as he says here. But you know they, they were baptized just like you were. And so they they had kind of hold a a position in their relationship with God that's similar to yours. And they ate spiritual food. Now you eat the Lord's Supper, you eat spiritual food, but they eat spiritual food as well. You might remember that the Lord provided food for the Israelites, he provided manna, and he provided water from the rock. And they might may have been drinking physical water, but it's really. The Lord that's supplying them the water. And so you're drinking spiritual water. The rock is Christ. You're receiving His blessing as you drink this water. There's really a lesson to be learned from all of that. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. In reviewing these uh, this occasion, Moses says that God humbled you, let you be hungry, fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So you're eating physical food, but there's a spiritual lesson to be learned there. And the lesson is man doesn't live by bread alone. And so he establishes their relationship with God. They were baptized like the Corinthians had been baptized. The Corinthians were eating spiritual food in the Lord's Supper. Well, they ate spiritual food as well. But The next thing he says uh, about them back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, they had the same relationship with God that you have, but God was not pleased with them. Now just because a person is baptized and just because a person partakes of the Lord's Supper each week doesn't mean that God is pleased with them. And so it may be that because you've done these things you think you're standing. But really you're not standing at all. You're in big trouble. You think you're on solid ground but you're tottering. You're, You're in danger of falling. That's what happened with Israel. And they were laid low in the wilderness. Now here are these four examples. The first one in verse 6, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. So this first example is a reference to what happens at Mount Sinai. So if you go back to the book of Exodus, you'll find that Moses went up into the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he delayed up there. I mean, he was there for a, for a while, 40 days. And so the people go to Aaron, who's also a lead, one of their leaders, the brother of Moses, and they appeal to him to make them a god. Uh, this is uh, verse 1. Come make us a god who will go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what, what's become of him. And so make us a God that will go before us. And you remember the story, uh, Aaron collects the the gold and the precious metals from the Israelites that they had received from the Egyptians. They bring him all of those things, and he makes of that that material uh, a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so Aaron Makes a God who will go before us just like the people asked them, to, asked them to do. Verse 6 says, So the next day they arose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That's what's quoted over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But God is not pleased. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people, you know, not his people, your, your people. Notice that whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you from the land of Egypt. You might remember that on that occasion God tells Moses, Look, I'm going to wipe these people out and I'll I'll raise up people from from you. Alright, so you'll be the head of, of the nation. Remember, Moses appeals to God to relent, and and, and he does. But in verse 25, Moses saw that the people were out of control for Aaron. had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together. And they went through the company of people, and they slew the people. And verse 28 says, About 3,000 Men of the people fell that day. Here's three thousand who were laid low in the wilderness because of their sin. Because even though they were Israelites, even though in a sense they'd been baptized and eaten spiritual food, they turned away from the Lord, started worshiping this idol. And so God dealt with them. And they were laid low in the wilderness. And so Paul warns the Corinthians, don't make the same mistake. They were chosen by God, you're chosen by God. They fell into serious error. You may fall into serious error. God dealt with them. God will deal with you if you make the same mistake. Well, the second example he turns to in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, is the sin at Peor, Peor, or the idolatry at Peor, Numbers chapter 25. And so this occurs during the 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness. Israel is encamped at Shittim, and it says that they played the harlot with the local women, and they become involved in the idolatry of the Moabites. Again, this is Numbers chapter 25. And so verse 1, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Well, you can read the rest of that for yourself. As a result of that, 24,000 died by plague. I think it was 3,000 in the case of that, the idol that Aaron had made. Now, 24,000 are laid low in the wilderness. Now, these are people that had come out of Egypt. These are people that had passed through the Red Sea. They'd been baptized into Moses. These are people that ate spiritual food. And yet they turned away from God and became involved in idolatry, and they were laid low in the wilderness. And so the message is clear. If God's people turn from them, turn from Him, the consequences are severe. The consequences will be severe. Don't make the same mistake. I know you think you're standing, but you may not be. And so you need to be careful about your uh, conduct. Then the third instance that he looks at in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is the occasion in Numbers chapter 21 when the people complain and God sends serpents among the people to bite them. So take a look at that Numbers chapter 21 verses 4 and 5. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses, Why well, have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable food that God had been provided for, providing for them. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died." Well, in this particular case, they recognize their sin and confess it. In verse 7, we have sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede for the, uh, with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people and a remedy was provided. Take this bronze serpent, put it up on a pole and those that would look at the serpent will be healed. That, that's mentioned in John chapter 3 by the way, and uh, it, uh, uh, similar to, to Christ. As Christ is lifted up on the cross and we appeal to Him. Well, our sins are forgiven. Now, I don't, I don't know that we're told how many die as a result of this. It just says that many of the people died when they were bitten by these serpents. It's just another example of people of the covenant sinning and being laid low. And then the fourth example in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is uh, down in verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, children of Israel grumbled a lot. (laughs) The the most, uh, the one that gets my attention the most, the most impressive in a negative way, is in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 24. In Exodus chapter 14, they passed through the Red Sea. They've seen all of that. that, That's a remarkable scene. Then, Exodus chapter 15, They they sing this song of triumph, and before chapter 15 is over, it says in uh, verse 22, They came to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. They came to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah, for they were bitter, therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What are we going to drink? They just passed through the Red Sea. (laughs) It's just no time at all. They're already grumbling and complaining. But it may be that the episode that Paul has in mind here is in Numbers chapter 16. And the rebellion of Korah. Remember Korah and his co-conspirators, they complain about the leadership of Moses. And the earth swallows them up and and they're killed. And then verse 41, On the next day all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, You're the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. And as a result of that, of course, there is a plague that goes among them. And 14,700, verse 49, besides those who died on account of Korah, died on account of the plague. So here's four instances that Paul draws on from the Lord's, uh, from the Old Testament. and He he draws on to, to teach a valuable spiritual lesson. You need to be careful. How you, you might think you're standing, but in fact, you might be falling. Well, there are several other passages in the Bible in which uh, these kinds of statements are made, that these things happen as an example for us. We saw that in verse 6. These things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. And then verse 11, these things happen to them as an example, and they are written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages come. So, remember, we're talking a little bit about the use of the Old Testament and the New. here, Here we have another example of that. These things happen as an example for us. And so, we ought to be able to look at these events in the Old Testament and learn important lessons from them. Here are God's covenant people. They've been baptized, so to speak. They eat spiritual food. Now that's true of us as well. And yet God was not pleased with them, and they were laid low in the wilderness. Well, he may not be pleased with me and might lay me low if I'm I'm not careful. There are other other statements to this effect that what has been written earlier in the Old Testament is meant for us. Romans chapter 4, the example of Abraham not only for his sake was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And so, what happened in the case of Moses has an, or Abraham has an application for us today. And it was written for us. In fact, look at Romans chapter 15, where it makes a similar point Romans 15 and in verse 5. Uh, Let's see, uh, or rather verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And so what we have in the Old Testament is beneficial for us as well today. Well, just a couple of points. Applying these things to us. We need to recognize the danger of yielding to temptation and falling away. Now, now some people suggest, teach, maintain that once a person becomes a Christian he cannot fall away. Well a passage like this seems to say otherwise. And there are other passages that teach otherwise as well. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. They've escaped the defilements of the world, but they get entangled in those defilements again and are overcome. The last state has become worse with for them than the first. Be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy command and hand it on to them. It's happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. We can escape the world through the knowledge of Christ, and yet return to the world, and our latter condition is worse than it was in, in the beginning. And multiple other passages. Well, I think about Hebrews chapter four and verse one. He's talking about the Israel falling. This generation of Israelites falling before they're able to enter the promised land. And he says, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. You, you." Now, you're a Christian and you have the promise of eternal rest, but you need to be careful lest you fall short of it and don't receive the promise. In Hebrews chapter 6, Speaks to those who have fallen away in verse six. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And so here's the possibility of falling away. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter nine and verse twenty-seven recognizes that the danger is real even for him. And so he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so, you know, I've You know, I understand I'm the Apostle Paul and I help others come to a knowledge of the gospel and help them become Christians, but you know, I've got to watch out for my own spiritual well-being as well. I've got to discipline my body because if I yield to the temptation, I may very well be disqualified myself. So both the Old Testament and New Testament passages warn us of this danger. Satan doesn't stop tempting us when we become Christians. He continues to try to draw us away from the Lord. And so we need to be aware of that and be on guard against his efforts to understand his tactics and understand our weaknesses and how his strategy and his tactics and his attempts might be effective in each of our cases. Be be aware of those things. Be forearmed and forewarned so that we might resist. In Ephesians 6, Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So know his schemes, know our weaknesses, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. We can't afford to miss the lesson taught by the experiences of the Israelites, can we? We can't afford to miss that. It's a lesson found, the roots of it found in the Old Testament. But we see the application to us in the New Testament. We we began by talking about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What we said in the beginning was there's continuity between them and yet discontinuity as well. And so uh, the Old Testament tells us about the coming Christ. The Old Testament tells us that people are right with God on the basis of faith. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him for righteousness. We find reproof and correction in the Old Testament as well. But the Old Covenant has been taken out of the way, and its law is no longer binding on us. And so we're not obligated to keep the Sabbath and its traditions, to keep the feast days like the Passover, or the Feast of Booths, or Pentecost. None of us are obligated to make journeys to Jerusalem three times a year not obligated to keep the dietary laws or the law of Moses on, uh, on divorce and many, many other laws that we could use to illustrate. Those laws are not binding. That was the law of the old covenant, and it's been taken out of the way. Now a new covenant has been established. We don't, are not bound to keep the cleanliness regulations. A person who touched a dead body was unclean for a period of time. And there are many other many other uh, regulations concerning cleanness or cleanliness. Some of them involve normal bodily functions. If you have this normal bodily function, you're unclean. So that's that's out of our control. But that's part of the old covenant. It's no longer binding on us today. I'm glad, I'm glad we're not bound by that today. Boy, what a burden that would be to daily live under the, you know, the, the threat, the possibility of becoming unclean. And so no wonder Paul says this is an obligation neither we or our fathers were able to bear. Nor do we appeal to the Old Testament to inform us as to how to worship. We don't have a physical tabernacle or physical temple. The church is the temple of God today. We don't have a priesthood that's set aside from other members of the body of Christ. Certainly don't have a high priest among us other than Christ. And we don't dress in priestly garments and clothing and vestments. It's an Old Testament institution. We don't burn incense in worship. We don't have an Ark of the Covenant or an altar of incense. We don't make animal sacrifices. And we'd include the use of instrumental music in this. That was in the temple worship, but that's part of the Old Covenant with its system. And we could go on and on. And so there's discontinuity. The Old Covenant with its law, its, you know, its systems, its ceremonies, its rituals, its practices, those have been done away with. And yet there's continuity between the Old and New as well. It's profitable for doctrine. We've seen that in the case of justification by faith. Reproof and correction. And instruction in righteousness. And so we've seen how the Old Testament and New Testament relate to each other. And I hope it's been informative and helpful in some ways. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you at this time, and we give you honor and glory and praise. We pray, Father, that the praise that we've offered you today in, in our worship has been pleasing to you. We pray, Father, that it's been beneficial to us, that we've been uplifted by it and encouraged by it. And because of what we have said here today and done here today, that we will be more the kind of people that you would have us to be. Help us, Father, to take the things that we've done today, help us to take those things into our work week as we go out into the world and live in the world and among people of the world, that we will be strong, that we will be courageous, that people will be able to see the light of Christ shining in us, and they too will come to glorify you. Help us, Father, in our efforts to learn your word. So important to us, Father. Help us in our efforts to learn your word, and to handle it correctly, to handle it accurately, so that we might not make mistakes that will lead to our uh, being laid low. Our Father... We pray that we'll clothe ourselves with humility, that we'll examine ourselves carefully. We pray, Father, that you'll show us areas where we need to improve and that we'll make the commitment to improve in those areas. And so, Father, help us not to be arrogant and proud and think more highly of ourselves than we should. Help us, Father, to avoid thinking that we stand when we really don't. And help us, Father, always to depend on you, recognizing the danger before us, depending on you to help us grow and develop so that we will be strong, fruit-bearing Christians. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.